Hi everyone, welcome to Such a Good Feeling. Today's guest is a Grammy-nominated songwriter and producer who started out as part of the hugely successful Xenomania team, working with artists including Girls Aloud and the Sugar Babes before joining with George Astasio and Jason Pebworth to form the production team, The Invisible Men, working with everyone from Little Mix and Jesse J to Britney Spears, Ellie Goulding and so many more. I'm such a huge admirer of his work, so please welcome to the podcast, John Shave. Hi, John. Hi. How's it going? Yeah, good, thank you. How are you? I'm good. You are in your studio. I am. Yeah, this is in my basement in my house. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? We were just talking before we came on about in the olden days, you'd need a big room with loads of equipment and, you know, all that stuff. But so much can be just shrunken down now into just a room in your house. Yeah, no, totally. And I think the um, the pandemic was another big adjustment for me because I was sort of always, I was sort of... Um, in this sort of routine in my head that, that that work equals leaving the house, going to a studio and then coming back at the end of the day. And I'd kind of done that for years and years and years and years. And then suddenly was forced not to do that. And um, it was a massive revelation, um, just what you can actually achieve. You just need a room, you know. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree. I completely agree. So um, just sort of starting off um, background-wise, you know, where's... What kind of music you listen to when you're growing up? Um, so I came from like a very musical family, um, but we were all, it was very sort of rooted in classical music. And um, my parents had both gone to music college in London and they'd sort of met through that sort of classical music scene, I guess, kind of in the 60s in London. Um, and they both went into education and my dad became sort of uh, director of music education in in London and and um but they were both sort of very enthusiastic musicians still and so me and my two sisters were sort of were were all sort of um given the opportunity to kind of learn instruments and we all did stringed instruments so I started on the violin and and uh, my sister my older sister was violin as well and then my middle sister was a cello um and uh, but basically I was sort of, I was a bit of a, a musical black sheep because I was sort of really became really obsessed with pop music from about the age of about eight, I guess. Um, so yeah. And I just, it just really became my, my thing, I think in the family, you know, cause no one else was really, my, I mean, my sister had say like, like a Virgin album on cassette, you know, which was, that was really eye opening to me. And I kind of I absolutely, my mind was sort of blown by that really. And then I remember asking, must have been probably my eighth birthday for pop music. <laughs> and, um, and my parents brought me um, a Duran Duran album on tape, which was notorious. And I kind of, um, I just wore that tape out, you know, and, and it really just started. I just, I just was so fascinated by it and just used to kind of, um, you know, obviously pour over the, the inlay card and, and, you know, see this name like Nile Rogers, like, who is this mysterious person, you know, and it was kind of a real, really, just really endlessly fascinating thing to me. Um, and, and from there, you know, I very quickly progressed to sort of just, you know, taping the charts and making my own sort of edits of the chart and kind of then moving on to trying to get really precise with the pause button, making my own edits of songs and that kind of thing. Um, and it was, I guess, yeah, it was, it was, it was definitely very much my thing within the family, which it was 
my parents were very supportive, but I was definitely the only one sort of on that train really. Um, and, um, so yeah, so I just used to be, I mean, I was just kind of, when I was growing up, I was sort of, um, massively obsessed by all kinds of different pop music really. Um, you know, like I was saying, starting with like Madonna and Duran Duran, that kind of thing. And then into my teens really got into dance music quite heavily. Um, like Clavillis and Cole, um, Steve Silk Hurley, Black Box, Masters at Work, Brothers in Rhythm, of course, <laughs> a huge thing. Um, and these were all people that I would, I would go out and spend pocket money trying to get all the CD things I could based on these names because I became very sort of obsessed with who did what and what, you know, certain sounds and being able to trace lines through things. Um, and... Yeah, and I was I was also really, really into, and it was sort of because I was probably at school in my teens at this point, but like all the Stock Aitken Waterman stuff I thought was absolutely brilliant, you know, but it was it was the kind of thing that that would be difficult to sort of talk about that too loudly at school, you know. <laughs> but I absolutely loved it, you know, I really admired it and I thought the the songwriting was was just amazing, you know, and that and that kind of um um, I'd sort of long since given up the piano by that point because I never used to practice. But what I did used to do is sit at the piano and sort of work out, work out all these songs and work out how to play the different chords and work out the bass line and that kind of thing. And that sort of then led me into sort of wanting to make my own versions of that, I guess. Yeah, and I love that you've actually, that's kind of what got you back to keyboards as well. That's cool. Yeah, I mean, it was, <clears throat> it really was just wanting to, work out how to play along with this stuff to start with, or just there I'd, I'd hear sort of certain chord sequences that would be really, they, they just kind of blow my mind a little bit. And I'd be like, God, I, I really need to know how to, how to do that. Um, and I remember my dad saying to me, well, let's start with the bet, like start with the baseline. And if you can get that, then, you know, and then just like mess around with your right hand with, and then you'll find, you know, and um and and that's what I used to do for hours, like at weekends, I'd just sort of have my Walkman on at the piano and rewind play, rewind play. Um and that continued really I mean, I remember I was I discovered um songs in the key of life quite late on, really, when I was about 18. Um, but that again was another massive kind of step change moment for me because just song after song just really so amazing to me and it, again it was that kind of thing I was just like I wish I could play something like that you know so I, I would kind of try and sort of work that stuff out you know and, and that that really really fed into you know once once you kind of know a few chords you can then start putting them in a different order and and you you suddenly have your tool kit is kind of exponentially um, increased by, you know, just working out one Stevie Wonder song, really. So it's mainly piano, so you're not on, you haven't bought any keyboards at this point? No, I mean, I, I remember there was, there was things along the way, like um, I remember when my school got a Casio SK-1, which was like the sampling keyboard, and there was like one in the whole school, and, mm. and that was a real, um, just a massive eye-opener, you know, of like just sort of, suddenly the all the possibilities occur to your brain you know and it's kind of like this is this is amazing you know so i sort of really really obsessed by sampling really um and then i didn't really get the i i started really um i had an atari st which was um 
uh, I'd obviously kind of clocked the fact that it had MIDI ports on it. And then, you know, it was just getting into reading kind of some of the nerdy studio magazines and you'd see like an Atari ST in the corner. And that really, again, was a kind of like, oh, hang on a minute. I, the, all these studios have this, have what I've got, you know, maybe this, there's something in this, you know? And, and so I started, um, I just used to save up for years and I, ma- I managed to get in the end a copy of, um, this software C-Lab Notator, which was like the very early version of Logic and a kind of had a really basic sort of MIDI keyboard. And that's really where I kind of started. And I, I got this, um, it was called, it was an Akai compatible sampler at the time. It wasn't actually an Akai, it was Cheetah SX-16, <laughs> which was, um, used to sample, I think, for about three seconds in stereo or six seconds in mono kind of thing. And and that was that was amazing, you know, that was kind of, and then I started just being able to put things together in my bedroom that kind of at least were in the vaguely the same planet of the kind of stuff I was listening to. Yeah, and I guess that kind of stuff, it was, you know, the, the, there were low, the drum samples and stuff, you didn't need a huge amount. But I mean, it's mad now again to think that three seconds of stereo sampling was unbelievable at that time, wasn't it? Yeah. Like you, like yeah. to, to now to say that it feels like the dark ages yeah. it wasn't actually that long ago yeah no i know i know it's actually i mean god yeah if you think of it like that it really is it really is mind-blowing um but again it was like those three seconds kind of within them had like infinite possibilities you know mm. Yeah, well, you can have lots of little drum samples and 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 things like that. But it's and also to even get once you had them. I mean, I always tell like told this story before about one of the first keyboards I ever got was a secondhand Kirchfile, and it had a the string patch on it, which the Pet Shop Boys used, and I was like, oh, that's what I want. But to make that string patch work, you had to load in ten floppy disks. Wow. <laughs> Because it just did each little bit, yeah. do you know what I mean? And it couldn't store it. Yeah. It wasn't like you have to do that every single time. That was, yeah, the, again, the floppy disk loading times were, that was like the majority <laughs> of your day, you know, it was kind of. Yeah, yeah. But but limitation, again, breeds creativity. Yeah, totally. So you were making, what, kind of tracks, little things in your bedroom stuff? Was it, was it, did it ever go anywhere? Were you sort of playing them to your mates? What was happening? I was sort of. So yeah, I, it never, it definitely never went anywhere of note. I mean, it kind of, it, I would sort of make these backing tracks and then write songs and then just sort of would try and rope in friends or sometimes my sisters to sort of, uh, usually very reluctantly sing my ideas down. Um, and I'd borrowed, my school also had this, um, four track tape recorder which I'd, I'd, I'd literally borrowed it for literally three years. Like I just took it home. It never went, <laughs> never went back. So I used to, I used to record all ideas down on that and then used to try and assemble, I'd say inverted commas bands, um, for things like maybe a school talent show, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it usually was, uh, me sort of, quite sort of uh, prescriptively uh, writing the music and then and then trying to rope people in to perform it um in 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 my in my head was in the sort of like pwl kind of tradition but it was like a very uh ropey <laughs> version of that um but that was it was <clears throat> it was sort of firmly implanted in my brain by that point of like this is all i want to do really this is this is you know um i hadn't sort of cracked it by any means at that point but it, but it was definitely I, I felt like there's a future in this somehow if I can just work it out you know 
And what is the first time that you set foot in a studio that isn't your studio, your bedroom? The thing is, I went off to university um, and went to study popular music in Liverpool, like the University of Liverpool, which was, um, to me, that was, a, that was a really important thing for me as well, just in terms of my own kind of development, just because when... Basically, the, what they were try, what they were doing there, I don't I don't know if it was being done anywhere else at the time, which was really taking pop music really seriously as a as a sort of academic thing. And um, there was a couple of professors I met there that the first time I met them, it just it, it I finally met people that took it as seriously as I did, and that was a real kind of like big sort of moment for me. That just kind of I guess what it did was it it sort of um, it sort of validated this huge part of my identity, which had always been a bit of a, a not not a joke before that, but just a kind of like, you know, me saying, "Oh, I want to be a, a pop songwriter and producer," was was the equivalent of saying, "I may as well say I, I want to be an astronaut," you know. Um, so going to sort of study it formally, even though it wasn't it wasn't the most sort of practical course, so I didn't really my sort of technical side of things didn't really progress during that time. But I think what it did do is just really cement my kind of feelings of ambition really. And, and sort of what I really wanted to do afterwards. Um, and when I'd finished there, I, I, I still, I had that sort of ambition, but I had no contacts, no, no sort of in, in the music business at all, really. Um, but the one thing I could do was, type really fast <laughs> and so I kind of thought well if I try and get some kind of job in and around the music business in London and if I'm lucky maybe I'll meet the kind of person that can help me do what I really want to be doing um, and it just so happened the, fir the first job I went for um, was at a music law firm called SSB and um, <clears throat> I started there I kind of had very low expectations in terms of what it what it might lead to you know I kind of thought well it's probably going to be really boring it's a law firm and you know I should probably I'll, I'll start with this and then maybe like maybe I'll try and get a job at a record label or something a bit more closer to the action but then what I realized about within a week of being at SSB was everyone coming through the door was absolutely well firstly there were people I'd heard of and idolized and knew exactly what they were doing you know it's writers producers publishers managers labels literally the whole sort of microcosm of the music business was kind of in and out of there all the time um but also meeting one of the partners there sarah was um she was um making massive inroads in management herself and she'd just kind of been developing this girl band sugar babes for for about three years before i kind of came along and then i kind of came along just as they were gearing up to release Overload, their first single. So it suddenly I kind of found myself just purely sort of through luck, really, in this situation where I, I immediately knew if I kind of don't mess this up and I kind of <laughs> managed to, um, I guess, crack the code here a little bit, there, there's a lot of people here who could really help me. So I kind of... I. I kept my head down, really. I mean, I, I forged a really good relationship with with everyone I was working with, but I kind of didn't tell anyone I wrote music. Um, and I sort of kept it pretty quiet for about a year, 18 months. But then every, literally every evening, every weekend, 
I was so focused on trying to make a demo that would ultimately present. Um, and finally got to the point where, you know, I sort of went to, went to Sarah with like, you know, my, my CDR in my hand shaking kind of thing and said, you know, I actually write songs and, and, and she was so kind of welcoming. First of all, you know, she's so busy anyway, doing everything that she would normally do, but she kind of put everything on pause to listen to my demo. And then, and then uh, uh, immediately, you know, and I kind of cringe now thinking of the actual demos that I played her, you know, because it was so, it was really, um, early days, you know, um, but she heard enough in it to say, you know, I think, I think you could be on something and, and yeah, I'll, I'll help you, you know. And so then she, she would re- she was massively helpful just kind of firstly, just by introducing me to people, keeping her ear to the ground and sort of introducing me to people that could give me more advice really. And, and sort of, and one of those people was Brian Higgins um, that, that she introduced me to. And um, I went down. So in answer to the question, sorry for the long answer, but... but, but Not at all, no. I, this, I like, But the thing is, you wouldn't... This is what I love about this podcast, is that um, that's it's, it's nine times out of ten, it's an indirect route that gets you to where you... inevitably changes everything. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So, well, he invited me down to his place, uh, which is out in Kent, and I went there sort of one weekend, and um, again meeting him it was sort of it was on a par you know there was the lecture at university there was Sarah and then there was then there was meeting Brian and I think those are the sort of those are the biggest moments really in terms of just really um completely sort of um firstly resonating with me in a way that that hadn't happened before but also just changing my whole sort of outlook and at that point he he'd been doing um so obviously he'd a, a few years before that he'd obviously had the share record um but, you know, he'd been doing various things between then and when I met him, but he had just been working with Sugar Babes at that point, and he played me the very, very early sort of version of Round Round that he'd been sort of working on. And, and you know, I couldn't sort of, um, I could, you know, my, my, my enthusiasm on hearing that sort of audio clip was, was, so, was so real, you know, and I think he could just really sort of, uh, see that, you know, and, and, and we sort of connected. Um, and, but at that point in terms of the music I was making, I think it was sort of, in a sense, it was probably kind of his worst nightmare because I was sort of, you know, very much in that trying to sort of fit in with that tradition of what was coming out of Sweden at that point. So it's sort of in that sort of post Britney era, era where it's kind of, kind of trying to make American R and B influence pop records, which I love, I, you know, I actually, I love all that stuff genuinely. Um, but, but, you know, he's always over the years, always been very vocal that that was not his thing at all, you know? Um, and so I think at that point, you know, I think it was very early for me. I think it was early for him in terms of building what he was doing, although he was clearly, you know, he was really onto something. Um, so it, it didn't sort of, nothing really came to pass at that point. Um, and then I, after that, I sort of, sort of back in my day job, you know, sort of typing legal letters every day. And, and one of the clients was this guy, Craigie Dodds, who he, I'd played in my demo and he'd, he'd been really helpful as well. And he actually took it to two guys who were over in London from South Africa. Um, uh, 
and he played them my demo and they really loved it and really responded to it and basically offered me a room in their sort of studio set up in Wilsdon. And that was kind of, that was my way in really to sort of doing it full time. And so um, they, they, you know, they, they gave me this amazing room and sort of kitted it out. And then it was kind of like, there you go, come on write songs, <laughs> which was, which was really, you know, I was really in at the deep end at that point um, because I'd never actually, well, I mean, I had recorded sort of demos with other people, but, but in terms of doing it, you know, properly, professionally in an actual studio, you know, I'd never done that. And, and I kind of, I sort of blagged it a bit in that I said, yeah, I know, you know, I know how to use logic of course it's, you know, and I, I really didn't, you know, I kind of was really, <laughs> I, I had my, I, I knew the list editor from C-Lab Notator, but I didn't, you know, any of the sort of more sophisticated recording audio, that was all kind of pretty new, you know. Um, um, and I remember there, um, like crazy things now when I look back, but um, that the, one of the guys um, in one of the studios next door was uh, Robert Miles. And I remember asking Robert Miles to come and show me a few tips on logic and he showed me things like how to do force legato and all these kind of things. It was so sweet. So sort of helpful, you know? Um, and uh, I think I got all my key shortcuts, which I still use off him, you know? Um, that That's amazing. And actually I think again, one of the best ways to learn is to be chucked in at the deep end with a bit of a blag. And then, cause you're in there on your own and then you just make mistakes and you learn from, and as you say, one of the great things and one of the much missed things a little bit now about not having as many studios is, you know, there were always people next door that you could just count on to just come in or just go and hang out and see what they were doing. It was a, once you, once you went through, it doesn't really matter what studio was that, was this battery you were at or was it another studio? No. So it was, it was basically in, um, it was a Psalm, it was basically called Psalm Workshops and it was in. Oh, I know what you mean. Yeah. 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 yeah, um, yeah. So it was, so the guy that had sort of taken me under his wing was this guy, Pete Martin. Um, oh yes, I know Pete, yeah. an incredible producer. Incredible. And literally, I mean, I'm not even joking when I say when I first walked into his studio, it was like walking into the Starship Enterprise oh, and yeah. hearing what he was doing. I literally, I remember f feeling really physically dizzy. Like it, it literally was so mind-bendingly brilliant to me and sort of just to be there sort of witnessing it you know it was it, that was that was such a huge deal and he was so he was just so brilliant you know he was just like um and so kind of quick and just he, he just had it all kind of uh, there you know and um and very quickly you know I picked up things from him that that really that that stay with me now really thing just in terms of even things like vocal production things like you know, sort of stacking BVs and how to pan them and how to, you know, all that, all those kind of sort of quite nerdy treatmenty things, but that things that if you get them worked out, they really kind of, they're massive building blocks of, of, of a sound, you know? Um, and yeah, so that, that, that sort of, that lasted about six months, that sort of position. Cause I mean, to be fair to those guys, like, you know, I mean, yeah, it was, uh, to have me there just as a, a sort of just to write my songs, you know, was, was, a, was I think was a massive indulgence, you know, and, it, and I think also um, 
I used to do other bits and pieces for them as well. Like um, um, the other guy had a, a business in South Africa of sort of, uh, this was obviously pre, pre sort of music distribution, distribution on the internet really. So they would, they would sell sound alike CDs of the, the mm-hmm. big sort of West European hits um, or American hits in South Africa. So I used to, that was also, it was, to be honest, it was a massively helpful thing as well because having to remake say, yeah. you know, Madonna die another day or <laughs> like um what was the other I did an Eminem one you know just really sort of random things but like having to really get to grips with like what's actually going on hmm. in these records what 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 makes up the sound of this record um was it was just really really helpful you know in terms of me build, being able to sort of then take that into my own productions so you're there for six months. Yeah, there for six months. And then, you know, I think the structure of their business was changing. And, you know, I could just tell, like, I feel like there's, there's probably not m- that much time left here for me, really. So I kind of, at that point, just, again, weirdly, by coincidence, I, I bumped into Brian Higgins again at a couple of events. Like he was at a wedding that I went to. And then I sort of blagged an invite to the ASCAP Awards and... And he was there, you know, because he was picking, he was actually picking up awards for Believe, I think, that, that night, you know, and, and we chatted. And then he was like, look, you should come down again and we, I'll show you what we're doing. Things have moved on and, you know, and, and things had moved on for me, obviously. So, so the sort of the level of the demo I was walking back in with the second time was, was this sort of different world to when I'd first been there. And then, and, and when I went back down, he, he played me the sort of um, the very early demo of Sound of the Underground. And, you know, at that point, I think it was at the point where Popstars Arrivals was on actually going out on TV and he was like, this is going to be the single for the girl band. And, you know, um, so there was, there was, there was, there was lots, there was lots going on there really. And, and, and at that point, um, he offered me a, a position there, you know, which, which was amazing. And I kind of bit his arm off, you know, cause it was, uh, it was such an exciting place. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I kind of went and started there straight away, and and uh, and again, that was another sort of into another deep end, really, just because it, it was sort of um, from that point. You know, I was there for like four years, and um, I think I must have, in some capacity, worked on it was something like twenty top ten singles, you know, during that time, and it was just like bang, 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 go, 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 um, and you know, all hands on deck, just, just really, really quick turnaround. Um, and it, it just kind of taught me so much, um, missing stuff that had been missing, like, i.e. things like when is something finished? Where is the bar that means that it's finished? And, and that kind of thing, really. There's obviously so many songs that you worked on there, but I mean, as someone that came from doing the six months, then going there and doing it, do you remember the first one? the first one that you worked? Because obviously it probably wasn't all in order, knowing no. what Zeno is like with the pick and mix. But do you, remember, do you remember the first one that you actually worked on that then you remember hearing on the radio, going on TV, it's in the charts? Yeah, what that? I, 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 I do, yeah. It was, um, so it was basically Girls Aloud did a cover of Jump for the Love Actually soundtrack. And I just... Uh, I just did tiny, tiny bits and pieces on that, but, but it was my first sort of credit, you know, and, um, mm. it was, that it was amazing. You know, it was kind of, it was, it was really, um, 
it was it was just it was just quite mad really to hear you know something that we'd been working on you know in a room suddenly then you're in a room you hear it out in a in a bar or something and you're suddenly in a room with you know people who are sort of experiencing that as sort of you know enthusiastic consumers of that and seeing people's reaction to something that I think that to me has remained the biggest sort of buzz out of out of the whole job really is is when when you see something kind of have its own life um in a public environment well also I think due to the sort of brilliant pick and mix kind of culture of xenomania you could be sometimes working on something that you don't know ends up being something else anyway totally yeah (laughs) yeah and i by the way i love that i i'd i've always got such a huge amount of respect for the kind of for what brian did there by you know the kind of verse from this chorus from that break you know yeah there was never a single song structure that you could actually say followed a particular pattern yeah and i think zeno and 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 particularly um the work with girls aloud was was extraordinary um, in 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 the realms of what they what he did and how he did it and how the end product sounded. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was amazing to just even be in that orbit, really. And it was it felt very anarchic at the time. You know, it was kind of like willfully tearing up rule books and just kind of. And that was all really. It was so sort of fueled and driven by Brian. Really, Brian really is a punk musician at heart. You know, and that that was his whole sort of approach um and i absolutely loved sort of being along for the ride with that really because it it really just it it felt really subversive in a way you know because the landscape at that time was it was really an indie band era you know and 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 radio were very very snooty about all our records um and there was really it was it was a struggle to kind of get support i mean luckily it was an era of you know big pop tv you know cd uk that kind of thing so that would be your You'd hope, you know, if you get those kind of um, looks, then then you'd you'd end up being okay. But radio was was a struggle. But it kind of also then fed into the kind of like the attitude of like, well, this isn't going to get played anyway, so let's not sanitize what we're doing, you know. Um, and yeah, it, I I found that just so kind of refreshing and exciting, and you know, it was it was kind of it was it was so kind of like Brian's spirit was like threaded throughout that whole kind of company, really. Yeah, I think Brian Spirit and the, the, obviously all the combined talents of all the people within it and within the, within the building. And I think it's really interesting that, you know, the, as you say, Xenomania had a, you know, they, they weren't necessarily loved by certain parts of the press, nor was Doc Aiken and Waterman. But actually, if you look at it, both of those production teams the majority of the songs are, are the ones that have stood the test of time. Like, for instance, last year um, I saw Sugar Babes. Um, in fact, they were supporting um, Westlife in a stadium and Round Round came on and it was it's just an anthem. It's like a modern pop anthem. So I just think it was... It was you know, incredibly catchy tunes, incredible, amazing acts, great writing. I mean, from your side as well... As a keyboard player, programmer, engineer, I mean, you know, I imagine somewhere like Xenomania, it's the sandbox, everything you need, you've got, right? Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, it was kind of, it was a situation where, so there was probably me and I'd say three other kind of like full-time producer type people there. And um, we all had a room and it was very much like, it was very, very disciplined. It was very like every day, like, this is the this is what needs to be achieved today. Um, 
Um, but then within that, you know, that would, that could be like, right. All this week we're making beats for what, you know, what hopefully will make up the next girls aloud album. And that was a really, really like creative thing. And, and I think once I'd kind of been there for a little while and, and really sussed out like this sort of overlaps in my, my own sort of taste and abilities with, with what, what I know, you know, Brian liked and, and, and what would work for the girls. Um, that became a really, really sort of creatively enjoyable thing because you really could just make what, you know, to anyone else, this it probably thinks is quite crazy stuff, but, 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 but there's something about sort of combining all those elements that just, you know, and, and that's always what's, it was sort of, uh, I guess, bottling what is really exciting about pop music when it's really exciting of that sort of the, the slight amounts of the unexpected in, in, in that. And we were sort of looking for that all the time, which was, um, which was great, you know. Plus it's quality control and it's, you know, there was, there was records in there, nearly all of them, but you know, it felt like every record was an event, especially with the girls, you know, the show was an event. The promise was an event. It wasn't just a single, it was a mission statement. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the show was an amazing, because the show was my first kind of, it was my first sort of inverted commas cut as a, as a, as a co-writer, you know, and, um, and I, I was so kind of um, enthusiastic and so sort of keen to sort of get involved on that level. But, but you know, I, I hadn't sort of managed to get anything to stick up to that point. But I remember we were, we were sort of writing for the, for the second, for the Girls Aloud second album. And um, there was obviously just like a million different ideas flying around and so many amazing ideas and so many amazing musical ideas. And, um, but I remember one day Miranda coming to me and just saying, oh, we're not getting anywhere with any of the beats we've got today. Can you just like, just bang out like, say 10 bass lines, like just really quick, like, and, and so I did and sort of delivered her down the CD and then, and didn't really hear anything more of it. And then and we used to get the train together and I remember um, a week or so later, I remember her singing to me this lyric she'd just written, which was like, should have known, should have cared, should have hung around the kitchen in my underwear. <laughs> and, and I remember just thinking this was so, it was so brilliant. And, I, I, and inbuilt with that for me at that point was this sort of equal pang of like longing that I just kind of felt like, well, there's no way that will ever be anything to do with any of my ideas, but it sounds great and, you know, brilliant. You know, I'm so, I can't wait to hear it properly. And, and I had no idea, you know, that that's what she'd been sort of put, putting together on, on, on one of my bass lines. And, um, and so there was that section, and then there was a, one of the different other bass lines. There was the show, the, cor- the other chorus section, and, um, and Brian really liked both, and he was just kind of like, uh, just stitch them together, you know, I want to hear what they sound like together, you know, and they were kind of in different keys, one's minor, and one's major, you know, but so it's kind of like, okay, so went away and did that, and then next thing, you know, Colin Barlow's in to hear all the potential you know what what's been going on kind of thing and he very decisively was like that's the first single you know so it was that was an amazing sort of result really for me at that at that point which um it's sort of uh that sort of jolt of self-confidence it then it actually then was quite easy to sort of finish it even though it's such a weird record but all the other musical elements I found quite came quite naturally after that point because it's sort of having that that sort of cosine of like well Brian likes it Colin likes it 
you know, <laughs> we're on to something, you know. But that's the kind of genius, I think, again, with, you know, with that Xenomania thing of it's just like, well, here's one thing and here's something else. And it's just like, put it together. But um, in the show as well, you've just got... Um, I mean, it, 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 it's all it's loads of those influences, all those '80s records you're listening to. You know, it's, it does it sounds like a contemporary record, but the kind of the main riff in it is kind of almost like a I don't know, like a Depeche Mode riff or something. It's do you know what I mean? It's yeah. got all that you could hear all those influences coming through. Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, I, I, I it was, it was a real, it was just a real, really nice coming together of of all that, really, and and then it, it actually when that kind of came out and to see the reception to that, just from really kind of like thinking people's sort of uh, places, like um, I remember the pop, I always remember it sort of like in my brain, the pop justice review was like, said something like much like a cow has three stomachs. The the show has two choruses. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it was just, it was just so, so brilliant and, and hilarious. And, and, but obviously like fiercely enthusiastic and sort of defensive about this record and, you know, and I remember places like The Guardian, really enthusiastic, you know, and, and that was just, it was amazing. It was this sort of like, um, to get all that kind of critical acclaim as well. Yeah, no, it, it's absolutely genius. So you're there for four years. Um, what's the motivation? Is, it, is there a point where, and you don't, I don't need to go into why you, why you moved on, but I mean, but how, what, how was that transition for you to go, I, I'm interested in moving on and, and, and presumably how you ended up meeting George and Jason. Yeah, I think it was a, I mean, it was a combination of a few things, really. I think um, I absolutely loved being there and it, it kind of, it, it really taught me so much and it, it brought me so many things that even to this day I'm, I'm really grateful for, just in terms of personal development and skills and, 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 and all kinds of things really. But I, I kind of feel like, you know, the deal of being in a situation like that is you are executing ultimately someone else's vision, even though you're trying to be kind of as artistic and you kind of bring as much as you can of yourself to that. And you need to do, you have to do that for it to work. But, but, um, I think I felt like it, I could I could easily go on doing that forever or I could see if there's more there for me where I can sort of you know I guess execute my own vision a bit more and um and um so I kind of it, the, the it felt like a bit of a natural juncture around the first girls allow grace hits album you know that just really felt like a good time to me to just kind of bow out really and um, I was also, I mean, to be honest, like to be completely honest, it was, it was a really, it was, it was a real sort of pressure cooker environment, you know, that, that I was there. It was four years relentless. Um, and, and I, I think ultimately I got to a point where I, I, it just felt unsustainable. Maybe I just needed a, a good holiday or whatever, but, <laughs> but I, but yeah, I just, I kind of, that it was that the sort of feeling a bit burnt out, but also knowing I had sort of, I felt like I had more to do on my own, you know, was, was the thing really. And that's brave as well. Yeah. I mean, brave or, yeah. Or some people thought I was mad at the time, <laughs> but it was, yeah, I just, it just felt really necessary at that point. And, um, 
and you know i was i was so grateful and glad to be there but i was also i was also sort of really you know happy to sort of move on i mean that did then the the thing is with after that is imme- immediately after that i kind of <clears throat> i dipped a toe in the sort of songwriting session scene in london and i just immediately had a bit of a allergic reaction to it in that i it it just felt like uh, the, i don't want to be right now i really don't just want to be going from that studio all day every day to other studios all day every day and so i i had some sort of felt like i just had some working out to do and then i actually moved back up to liverpool at that point and i got a a a job in a housing association (laughs) which um which at the time was was exactly what i kind of needed you know and i was sort of surrounded by all these lovely people up in liverpool who kind of i think they probably thought i was a bit of a fantasist because i'd sort of like you know now and then drop in the odd thing like oh yeah you know I worked on that song or like oh yeah so and so and they're like yeah okay whatever you know Uh, (laughs) but it was a really good sort of reset for me um and I didn't quite know like I felt like I I had a future in music but I, I kind of didn't know what that was at that point and I think I first of all I just needed a break so you know doing something else completely different for six months was great felt like a sort of holiday but then about six months into that, I kind of was like, oh, I really just want to write songs and just for fun. And, you know, so I kind of started doing that again in my spare time and just really refound my own sort of love for it, I guess. Um, and then about six months after that, um, again, just out of the blue, again, had a, a phone call from Sarah Stennett, who I hadn't really been that much in touch with over that period. But she was kind of like, what are you doing? And I was like... Um, oh, I'm in Liverpool working for a, for a housing association, and she was like, um, "What? Why are you doing that?" You know, she's like, "I'm doing a boy band. I need songs. You know, what you got, kind of thing." And so, I sent her what I'd been doing, and she was just kind of like, "I love it, right? I've booked the boys. They're coming up. They're gonna. I've booked Par Street Studios. They're coming up. You've got to go in there. You've got to." So I had to like arrange time off <laughs> work to go and record this song and. And it was just a very, it was, which was so exciting at the, again at the time, you know, because it was this sort of like being reborn kind of thing, you know. Um, and I, I'd had so much kind of self-doubt, I think, that I'd been sort of dealing with for quite a long time that it was this sort of big rubber stamp of like, you can still do this, you know, this is all still there for you if you want it, you know. And um, so, yeah, and that was it really. And then and then she she introduced me to, Jason and George and and I uh, went and so I used to sort of book holiday off work and go down to London and and, and write with them um and we just kind of hit it off and I, I had this sort of slightly naive thing in my head I thought well I can just live up in Liverpool and I'll just I'll just send my songs down you know and, and she she can sort of use them as and when and I remember her saying to me she was like look people don't need songs you know we're we're, we're drowning in songs we need you here and we need you in sessions and we that's 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 what it's all about and you need to be around where this where it's all happening and so you've got to move back and you know and and so that kind of that kind of set that all in motion and then and then sort of pretty quick around the same time my sort of partnership with Jason and George was sort of resulting in songs were going to be coming out you know so we kind of it was like one of those moments where it's like well shall we 
should we kind of do this then as a as a thing? Should we be a, a team? Yeah, might as well, you know. And then spent ages looking for a name, you know, and ended up we were me and George were on IMDb and I was sort of looking down the 50s B-movie titles and saw like Invisible Man. And I said, well, how about Invisible Men? And then it was the first thing where he, we all were like, oh yeah, that's cool. Yeah, let's do that. Um, so it was sort of, it was very, it was really natural, really, uh, us three coming together. Um, and they were so lovely, two lovely people who just couldn't be more different to what I'd experienced before in music in that they're so... They're obviously both American, so kind of laid back, um, so just kind of like anything goes, easy going kind of thing. Um, and that was that was really that was really sort of uh, refreshing to me at that at that point. And I, and again, I, I immediately going in the studio with them and sort of making records with them, I, I felt like I had more to learn from them because I'd sort of come from this frantic sort of kitchen sink aesthetic production wise where like throw more in what what more can we get into this record to working with Jason and George it was like how much can we take out you know how minimal can we make it you know because I'd always loved minimal music as well you know and especially on a dance music level you know just some of my favorite records have been so minimal um and so it was almost that moment of sort of getting that permission from those other guys to really explore that. That's what it felt like to me, you know, that that kind of, that was just really eye-opening and became a whole new sort of voyage of discovery on that side of things, production-wise, really. And also, I think the wealth of experience you had from Zeno, I mean, it, it is one of the one of the trickiest things to negotiate, and thankfully you had enough time to do that, but to definitely be in a room as a producer with a multiple artist group, whether it's a boy band or a girl band. So again, that's not for the faint hearted. <laughs> but um, Yeah. <laughs> no, because it is a mix of, it is a mix of politics, social work, um, and just getting the job done. And I think the other thing is that uh, inevitably when you're in a really high profile band, like some of the, a lot of the ones you've worked with, the time that they have allotted to make the records is usually the least amount of time that they have in their whole schedule. That's so it. potentially yep. they could have 95% of their time for promo and 5% of their time to make the record. Yeah. So it's not only do you have to get it and you have to get it amazing, you have to get it quick. Yeah. So I just wondered if you if if you had any kind of thoughts about, you know, process with that. Yeah, totally. I mean, I do think that was one of the things that you know, in Xenomania, it wasn't just about recording a song from start to finish either. You know, it would be, there may be up to 20 melodies with lyrics attached to record on any one piece of music with five girls and sometimes in up to five different keys. And, you know, I almost, I sort of almost became... um annoyed with myself because I was, I was always really quite good at the organizational side of things. So I'd sort of be landed with this, this sort of like mammoth task of like, Oh yeah, you've got to record today. You've got to do these four songs in five keys, five different girls. One song we did once had 80 elements on it. And I'm not joking. <laughs> uh, 80 top, 80 top lined elements. Um, and so that kind of really, that was like, that was baptism of fire, but it kind of got me 
it, it got got certain things really quick for me, you know, and dealing with, because <clears throat> you would get certain melodies where certain artists would be, I don't like it, I don't want to sing it, or I don't, you know, and, but my job was to, to get that to happen, you know, so you kind of get into that, that sort of mode of, of like, okay, how, what's the, what the problem solving, like, what can we do here to try and mm. get this to happen, you know, so th- those became really valuable experiences. Um, and then also on a technical level, just recording that many vocals and sort of comping and, and bouncing down, just making sure that they could be heard and with the EQ was right and, and was appropriate for that singer and, and, and that kind of stuff that became really just by accident really became my thing, you know, in terms of vocals and it's sort of one of those things that has been a really, really valuable thing since then, you know, because it's, if, if nothing else, it's one area I'm always really confident is I can sort of make a vocal sound really good. So, so that, but that really helps in, in lots of situations and it helps bond you with artists when they know you, they, you can make them sound good. You know, that's kind of a, a, uh, a really useful thing, I think. It, it it is. It's 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 probably one of the best skills, and I think it's um, it's it, you know, I always say there's there's a thing now where you know the vocal producer is one thing and the track does, but actually the vocals what and what people are listening to, and as you say, it's I've, I've said this a few times on on here that you know for that three hours, you know, you're in front of that, you've got people in front of you, and you're going to do that session, then you're going to do another one, then you're going to do another one whatever they do in that session is going to last for the rest of their life and they're going to hear it all the time. Yeah. So it has, it's so important that they're comfortable and they trust you. I think it's easy to lose sight of that as well, that what you're committing to a record is there forever, you know, because, because when you're sort of like churning a lot of a, a large volume of material out all the time, you know, you can, you can sort of lose sight of that. And I do even now sort of regularly, have to sort of remind myself like this, this is, you know, this is going to be, this is going to exist forever. So it needs to be, needs to be right. And I find that a really helpful kind of like steering thing sometimes. Yeah. I think it's really grounding. And I think as well, when you're dealing with artists who, you know, if the things are hit, they're singing it for the rest of their life or it's on a video they're going to see for the rest of their life. And if so, yeah, I mean, vocal recording is, 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 is so, is so incredibly important. So for the three of you, I guess one of the first things that you do together is, is back with sugar babes, right? Yeah. Yeah. That was kind of the first thing really. Um, and it was, it was interesting because I think we were sort of <clears throat> given the impression that the whole album was going to be based on Northern Soul samples. So we'd sort of really sort of like studiously set aside kind of finding these samples, replaying, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then it turned out no other record on the record, no other song on the record had, an <laughs> had a Northern Soul sample in it. So <laughs> there was some crossed wires along the way, but it was, it was a great sort of, it was sort of brought together it brought us together. I think it, it sort of, it was like making, making records for sugar Bays. It sort of, I was able to sort of bring my skills. They were bringing their skills, you know, writing wise and musicianship wise. And it, it was, a, it was a really good sort of, um, acid test, I guess, of like us as a, a partnership. And what we found is it was a really complimentary, thing just by accident just you know there was sort of me on the the sort of computer production programmy side 
also vocals and that kind of thing. And then Jason, singer-songwriter, George, guitarist, all three of us with different influences. Um, but there was something quite inspired about that that the com- that combination. It just it just felt really um, just really sort of brilliantly complementary, really. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, absolutely great record. And again, those, those voices are fantastic. You, you, you also were, I presume, one of the big, first really big ones um, was the the Rita Ora song with the with DJ Fresh, which actually was the first time I think we'd really even heard of Rita. Actually, yeah, that was her sort of debut, which was uh, which which again. Hot Right Now is one of those records where people hear now and they'll go, oh, yeah, it sounds good. But actually at the time, there had never been a record that sounded like that, that was as successful as that. Yeah, I think it was like the first drum and bass number one. Um, That's kind of cool. Yeah, no, very cool. Very cool. I mean, um, again, that was, you know, we, we'd sort of known Rita for, for a while by that point. Um, and... Sarah had met Rita and had sort of introduced us and but it was one of those it was it was a it was a I remember the first time we met because um we were sort of off I think we were off like we we had our studio was in West London and it was it was in George's old flat at the time in Shepherd's Bush and um but we'd gone off very unusually for us to do this we'd sort of left the studio for the day and we'd gone to I think like Funky Junk or somewhere which I think was like in Hornsey and we were like trying out speakers and we're just like having a great time with all this like vintage gear. And then the phone went and Sarah's like, I've got an artist. You've got to meet, you've got to meet her and, and she's coming around now, you know? <laughs> and we were like, Oh, okay. We'll be there like ASOP kind of thing. So we sort of drove back, you know, across London and, and, um, and Rita was there kind of on the doorstep when we got there and um, was just this, I think she was only 17 at the time, but she was just so, such a, a lovely but superstar, you know, from, from the first second you, you meet her. It's just kind of just just ama- amazing person, really. And so kind of so willing and sweet and just prepared, like just was like fine to try anything in the studio, really. And, and, and so we started working with her then and it was um, we'd, we'd do bits and pieces with her theoretically for her project because she'd kind of just signed with Rock Nation and was kind of you know, putting together music for that. And and we do bits and pieces. And then during, so we had made, so we'd made, we'd made do it like a dude with Jesse J. And um, the, the person who did the remix for that, or there was some remix happening by DJ Fresh for Jesse J. And DJ Fresh had just had a song out called Louder, which was a big dubstep record, but that had been number one. And we got introduced through the sort of Jesse J connection. And um, he was he was putting together his own sort of set of music. But he he is one of the most technically genius, amazing producers I've ever met. You know, he just he he is he's just so brilliant at, at what he does. And and it, and so he'd have these bits and pieces. And I remember he played a sort of a sort of a, 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 an early sort of take on hot right now. And I remember feeling really like viscerally, that's the one we need to do that one. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's that's. And so we, we, we sort of sat with him and sort of wrote the song and helped him arrange it and structure it and everything. Um, and then I, me- I remember just thinking, God, if Rita did this, it would, it would be because she hadn't had any music out, but, but there was a sort of growing awareness. Um, and 
yeah, I just remember nagging and nagging Sarah of just like, please, please, just like, can we just try this? And and um got to, you know, got to make that happen. And um and then I, as I understand, there was massive reluctance from her label side to put it out. And they were kind of, you know, because they didn't really she was signed to an American label who didn't really understand drum and bass and that kind of thing. But we just knew at that point that in the UK and, you know, probably Europe at that point, that was a, that would be a big, have a big impact, you know, um, which you don't get that all the time by any means. It was one of those just, you know, just for some reason, just felt really confident about, you know, if all, if all the, if all the stars could align and all the pieces come together, we kind of knew that we, we'd be on to something. And, and luckily, Thankfully, it did. Yeah, right song, right person, launched a career, um, got you a really, really big song. I mean, as you say, the Jesse song had already been huge and again launched another career um, with, with, with a, a, you know, such an interesting take because everyone had known before then, or most of the people in the industry had known Jesse as just this phenomenal singer who could have sung anything. Anything that she would have been, and still to this day, is one of the best singers this country's ever produced. Um, but actually, to to go with something that sort of showed the other side of her personality—that was edgy, that was tough, that was hard, that was controversial—was um, a very smart move because you, it's the difference between making a, like making a record for a singer and making a record for an, an artist. Yeah. And I think that was what that record did. It, it just said, hi, I'm here and I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it literally says, I'm a, I've arrived is the first lyric. In the <laughs> yeah. But it's, a, but it's back to what I was saying about some of the records that you were involved in at Zeno. It's an, it's an event. Yeah. It's an event record. Yeah. Um, it's funny because it's like when you look back and you, it's, it's sort of easy to see that, but at the time you don't necessarily, you, you, you never know how something's going to go, go across, you know. But what I did know with Jesse is that, yeah, just absolutely phenomenal singer. And I think, you know, when, I, when we met Jesse, like she, I, I feel like she'd kind of pretty much written with any, any, all the sort of producers everywhere, all over the world and sort of worked, you know, and she, she had songs with every, literally any, you know, you name it, she'd kind of worked with them. But mm. I feel like no one quite felt she had the thing that was going to make an, make an imprint. Mm. So um, that's a sort of, it's a massive blessing if you come in at that point, just because you can also kind of suss out what's missing maybe and, and really sort of look at it that way. Um, but then it's also, it has its challenges because you know she's got hundreds of songs that she's attached to and and you know and so you're you're trying to sort of um i guess have an influence but without without sort of um without treading on toes too much you know but i mean to to, to be fair like the um the do it like a dude concept was absolutely it was uh, i remember her talking about before we went in to write it it was she was saying i want to do a song that has this kind of turns the tables on men and sort of flips gender roles and I want that's what I want to play with and that's what and um and, and we thought that was a, a great idea you know and then it, it was sort of I think everything just came together on the day but it was it was a it was a lucky thing of, of having the right sort of music with the right you know being in the right mm. headspace and and it just it sort of came together but again there was another um aspect to it as well that was was at that point we 
I feel like when we wrote that song, we were writing as if it wouldn't be for Jesse. And I think that actually helped unlock a whole load of sort of freeness in, in what she felt able to do. And then, and I think then she could live with it. And then I, I do remember thinking like, God, that would be a great first single if, if, if she can sort of get her head around doing that, you know, um, and I think she was able to live with it. And I think then it sort of, you know, it worked itself out. But yeah, it was one of those where, um, and I found this with a few artists over the years where it's, there's something quite, it can get quite sort of restrictive. Uh, the, the artists' own ideas about what they think they should be saying or not saying kind of can get in the way of their them being truly great, you know, and I, and I think we were sort of at that point where it was, um, where, where I think she'd sort of spent such a long time trying to work out what is Jessie J that, that, that you sort of get in your own way by that point. So, you know, I think we were thinking of another artist when we wrote that song, to be honest. And I think that really helped. Yeah. that must be really freeing, really, really freeing. Um, so one of the things I love about this, uh, talking to people like you is that as much as I'm asking lots of questions that everyone else wants to know about, um, I do get a chance to sort of kind of ask questions about just records that I've always loved. And there's there's a lot of a lot of records that you've done that I've I've adored, but um one of them is the most perfect pop record. I mean, just it's in my list of perfect pop records. Every single thing is 10 out of 10. And I consistently post it when I'm doing hidden gems, all this kind of stuff. So tell me what are your recollections about On a Mission by Gabrielle Chilmy? Oh, thank you. That's kind of when I'd, I knew you'd done the other stuff, but that was the one that made me go, okay, who are these guys? Oh, <laughs> Well, thank you. That's that's great. It's yeah. So the, the the sort of the situation with that one, I'd worked with Gabriella quite a bit at Xenomania because the sort of job of her sort of artist development was really done there. To be honest, um, and she was super super young when she signed, and you know was starting to. I think she was like fourteen. Um, so I'd sort of known her and that was another one of those where I, I spent a long time with her recording and 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 I think recording with a 14 year old it's like it brings a whole other set of responsibilities you know um because mm. you know she was so young and um but it was it was a good sort of uh we we, we developed a really good relationship in the studio and um and so obviously I'd obviously left Xenomania gone through my wilderness period <laughs> and come back and was <clears throat> with invisible men and we were sort of doing our thing and um she was um brought in to work with us and i think it was that it was basically we we did a lot of sort of attempts that were still in the vein of what the first album had been and then you get to the point where you you just think right done enough of that let's just like throw some shit at the wall and see what sticks you know and, mm. and let's just kind of and um and I do think that was one of the things about um when I was first working with Jason and George is is sort of really enjoying finding out what our sort of shared um references and stuff are you know so it was kind of for me 
you know, there's obviously it, it, that that record leans into lots of different things like um, uh, Joe Jackson and um, um, the bit sort of Olivia Newton Johnny in places, and there's kind of there's stuff in there that to me really sort of spoke spoke to me as well. You know, so we sort of really enjoyed making that sort of backing track, and it's so sort of fast and furious, you know. Um, and yeah, we wrote, we wrote, we kind of wrote the chorus and then played it to, to Gabriella and, and, and she was great and was just kind of like, yeah, I'll give it, give it a go, you know, um, and finished it off with her. And yeah, it just, it just felt really special and, and sort of like a standout, um, once we'd done it, you know, um, and it was, it was very different to what she'd done before. But then again, I think that's what she wanted to do and that's what we felt the need to do, um, and that became our sort of first top 10 single, you know, as Invisible Men. Um, and yeah, I still love that record. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it, I feel like it's, it, it, it's, it seems to find its fans, you know, there's, you do meet the odd person. It's like the one that, <laughs> you know, that sticks in yeah, people's yeah. Hello. head, you know. Yes, <laughs> that's, that, that, yes, guilty. No, but I think also because that's a, it's really interesting, again, because, you know, you've got currently that sort of 180 BPM 80s song has got this massive renaissance, you mm. know, with Harry and with Coldplay and with The Weeknd and so many of these. But at the time, nothing sounded like that. It, it, yeah. You know, if you heard that on the radio today, you go, oh, yeah, right, I get it. Yeah. But at the time it was released... Everyone was making kind of more dance music, house music, you know, as you say, yeah. kind of R&B or something. So it just came like a bullet. It was like, God, what's that? It's like a, it's like a rocket yeah. has come and been launched. So um, we actually had to slow it down for Radio 2 because... Um, oh, did you? Yeah. And Radio 2, I think, became the only... I think they were the only station that played it. So the only version that was on the radio was never actually commercially available. And I think it's about 10 BPM slower than the... Um, than the actual version, you know. That is interesting. Too fast for Radio 2. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. I love that. Um, a couple of other things I just want to talk to you about. Obviously, Little Mix is and was a natural thing for you, having done, already worked with, you know, the previous biggest girl band. Yeah. Um, and the, those girls have come up a few times on this podcast and I, whenever they do, I always take the opportunity to say that, certainly from my experience, they are four of the hardest working girls I've ever met in my life. Yeah, yeah, especially vocally. Totally. Yeah, and I mean, and and for you as a vocal producer, that must have been a joy. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, like it was a joy, but it's also like the level of work that that represents when you've got literally four of the best singers in the country. <laughs> you know, is like. It's a lot like making a, a record for those guys was uh, it was a, a mission, you know, um, certainly vocally and then making sure everyone's happy with their comp and all that stuff was, you know, um, but it's, you know, I do it. One of the biggest joys is working with amazing singers. So, yeah, absolutely. You know, it, but it, it's kind of. um I guess the challenge with those guys was it's like trying to contain those vocals on one record because there's four there's four huge voices you know um and trying to get that to work that's a real kind of jigsaw I guess um but yeah like you say not dissimilar you know girls aloud was always the the hugest jigsaw you know 
Um, so yeah, definitely some parallels there for sure. Yeah. And I think just to give some context to people, and I mean, one is, you know, you've got the song that you want them to do, then you're working out who's best to sing what. And then as you say, you've got these incredible singers, where to put them, how to complement each other. They just want it to be the best. And then once you're happy and they're happy, you know, then you have probably the, in my rec- my recollection, and I'm, I'm, I'm often lament the demise of this label, even at times that it was quite tricky to make records for Psycho, the quality control at the end of Psycho was unlike anything I've ever experienced in my life. But yeah. there was always about the end product. And even if you were on mix 134, um, they still wanted to just go and go. And it's like, can it be better? Can it be better? Can it be better? Yes. And um, and at the time it was infuriating, but actually I think for most of us that did it, um, it was the right, it was, they cared. They really cared. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Um, I think what's been actually really nice for me is, is, um, I've been recently working a lot with um, Anya Jones as a songwriter, and mm. um, and what's amazing about that is she's obviously an amazing songwriter, but she brings with her all that experience and that sort of A and R perspective on everything mm. as well, which is like it's really amazing to have that, you know. And also, you know, she's delivered so many records at such a high level such a high quality going in there that yeah i completely i i i absolutely had times working with psycho where you feel like you're tearing your hair out you know um but i think if you look at the the sort of the 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 list of of all those those songs you know it's it's there's so many mind-blowingly brilliant ones you know and yeah just such high quality. And I think Anya as well, who is a songwriter for everyone that doesn't know, I mean, actually just currently um, got a a few songs on New Birdie record, which Mm. is extraordinary and so many other exciting things coming up. But um, to, to, to make the jump from uh, A&R and even when Anya Jones was, was A&R, she would come in and she's a singer. So she could sing you what she was hearing. And, and also she made, I always felt with Anya, she made, um, some people would make commercial A&R decisions. Anya made, they were commercial, but they were emotional. Yeah. It was all about, can we get this moment better? Can we, she wanted to evoke a feeling and an emotion and that's where it was always being pushed. Yeah. And I think she's brought that to her songwriting and I'm, I'm so happy and proud for her and um, I'm glad you're working with her as well. Yeah, she's she's literally, she's one of my absolute favourites, you know, and it's, it's, um, yeah, we have we have a lot of fun. We just we just did at the um at the end of last year we did a song for an advert. It was a Belvedere Vodka advert with Daniel Craig kind of dancing in it and um and she was so kind of amazing for me during that whole process because that was sort of working to a different you know working with a with a brand and um a creative director and and all sorts of things come with that and you know a million revisions but obviously Anya sort of been through that process many times over with her experience with psycho so kind of completely not phased by that but also great help for me helping decode well what do you think they mean when they say this you know what do you think this is what's the what's the musical 
version of what they're what they're asking for you know so yeah it's i love working with her and um she's awesome yeah that's that's a cool one so kind of bringing us right up to date you've got obviously you're back with rita with the the praising you kind of song that's that's out now um and the other person which i think is a really nice bookend actually um was the work some of the work that you've done with Sagala, who I have always thought is basically a nineties piano house record updated. A lot of what he does has that nineties ethos of all the songs that you loved growing up just brought bang up to date. And I think it's I've always said and he's a he's a musician and he's really, really clever, but I've always thought that 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 at the heart of it, that seems to be what it is to me. Yeah. And that's absolutely the sort of level on which I sort of connect with that music, you know. And I, I think, again, you know, he is someone, he will spend months and months tweaking, making sure something is just right, you know. And, and his sort of production ability in his ears are, are really quite astonishing, you know. And I, I, I see what goes into those, those records and it, it really... Um, I think to work on a song for like two and a half years, it has to be a real labour of love, you know. Um, and I've I've just been working on with him on another one. It's actually for my own dance project that I'm doing, um, but he's going to join for that. And so it's been really nice working with him on that. And again, seeing the attention to detail and and what he's brought to it has just been so fantastic, you know. So is this a, a, a project of yours that you're inviting guests to come in on? Yeah, or? so basically it's it's a DJ-fronted project. It's called Dopamine. And in, we basically, it started life, we made a record called Friday, which, which um, for Reton, um, uh, which it was a sort of a lockdown thing, but it, it, became, it was sort of based on a meme and it, it sampled Nightcrawlers. It sort of had lots of, um, it sort of, uh, was something I sort of put together, but it really sort of um, brought in a lot of my own kind of influences. And I got to sort of work with John Reed, recreating that sort of iconic vocal chop and all that kind of stuff. Just brilliant, brilliant stuff for me that just really appealed, you know. And and we made this record. Um, and in terms of sort of, but is when you can have a record like that, but you kind of, you really do need a, a good platform for it to... Um, for it to sort of come out and do do what you want it to do. And so um, Riton took it and did his thing. And, and obviously, you know, he's, he's amazing as well. And we just said, can you, you know, it's called the dopamine re-edit because that was our sort of first step in this project. And then um, we've had a couple of other releases since, but we're just about to have two releases lined up for this year that I feel really excited about. And that's, so it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's fronted by, um, a DJ. Um, but it's, it's kind of drawing on a lot of the, the influences that we've been talking about. Um, and those sort of nineties dance things. And it's sort of my way of just always trying to bring that through in some way, you know? And, when it comes to kind of new projects and new artists, I mean, how do you see it now? I mean, there's so many pros and cons for what it takes to become a new artist now. This, you know, it's great that you can get music out there really easily, but at the same point, that means there's very little editing process and there's more artists and more competition and stuff. And, and you know, there's a level where you're finding more, um, more fleeting 
sort of slightly trending things happening for a few months, but not creating sometimes not creating the next level of a superstar that someone's going to be around in 20 minutes. So I just wondered if as a, as a incredible and incredibly successful pop writer and pop producer, what are your thoughts on what it takes to be a, a to break a modern new artist? Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's interesting. It's interesting times at the moment for sure. I mean, I th- personally speaking, I, I, I love working with new artists. I love sort of working with developing artists and really sort of contributing to that process. And that's always, it's been such a huge part of, of what I've always done that I kind of always want that to continue really. Um, And I think for me, it's always, it's just about sort of trying to get that balance of, of, you know, you can, work with the with the sort of known brand names and that's that's great and everything but I, I always am trying to sort of also have a balance of of working with up-and-coming artists and um so at the moment you know I've been working with this artist Flower of Love who um is she's just amazing I mean but she's 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 really connecting with her audience online directly you know and, and she's sort of really following a new kind of model really where it's it's not it's sort of the opposite of overthinking it's not sort of locking yourself away for two years to try and make this mythical album it's it's literally make a song and and release it and and kind of keep your fan base um keep them receiving music on a regular basis you know so it's kind of like every month or something she puts something out but i think i see that being more the way and then also you get situations where it's almost like the A&R process has to be done post-release in that the fans sort of seem to choose the, what becomes the single now. It's kind of you put, put several you know, songs out and then one of them hopefully will, will kind of um, will do really well, you know, will do enough to know, you know, that's the one that's connecting. And you kind of have to, I don't think anyone has the the secret code to that happening now i think you know we've sort of moved from a gatekeeper heavy environment which i think if you were sort of i was obviously feel like i've been really lucky to sort of have, have benefited from that in terms of you know back in the day you knew if you if you you had your six weeks up front radio play and if you knew that you're on a certain you know playlist you'd be okay and then and then moving into the sort of um the uh, day and date release era um you still just felt like if there were certain gatekeeper boxes you could tick that you there's there's a there's a viable path to sort of like having a hit so to speak um and that's just that's just not the case now you know um so i think a lot of record labels are sort of playing catch up and sort of sort of swallowing things up after they've already sort of shown signs of, of connecting. Um, but I think from, from my side of it, you know, always just want to be working with artists really. I think it's just about picking a handful that I really sort of believe in that sort of want to put time into and then just kind of, um, sort of making it, you know, committing to that sort of like easy release of music, not getting too hung up about it and, and sort of, um, picking you know trying to work with people that that sort of have a direct connection with their audience i think that's the that's going to be the sort of way forward yeah i 
I agree with that. And I think it's kind of tough on a lot of the new artists as well, because, you know, you are, you know, when you started making records, the, they would, all they would do is they potentially, they would maybe write it, maybe not, you know, they would have someone write it, produce it. They turn up, sing it. Someone would do the PR, someone would make the video, someone would do the marketing, someone would do, you know, absolutely every step of the way, there'd be people in a record company to do all of that. And then predominantly now, nearly all of those jobs have to be done by the same person that's singing the record. They have to be initially their own everything. So, I mean, it is, and, and I've used this phrase a couple of times speaking to people, it is it is a full-time job that they don't get paid for. And it's a long game. There is, the instant success is quite easy, but it is never, hardly ever, ever sustainable. So, you know, it becomes a, it could be massive for a month and then you don't have anything to back it up. So I think because of your history, you know, I imagine you now have a really good eye to spot the kind of artists that have the, have the longer, have it in, have the fight in them to sort of give it a good three, four years and know that they're still going to have the same passion then as they do now. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. I do think um, there's certain sort of personality traits that you can you can really trace a line bet- between great artists that manage to have long careers and you do sort of see you see cases that that uh, you know new artists that absolutely you think yeah you know that 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 makes sense you know um and yeah i think that is one thing that you know experience really does help in terms of being able to sort of suss that out pretty quick really yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Um, all right, just to finish off, um, I, I need to do a nerd question um, because, and that, and anyone that's listening, they never they know who they are, and they don't mind me referring to them as that because I am one too. But um, what is? Give me a couple of your go-to synths, soft synths, things that you just they're work help, workhorses. You're starting something new, and you go, well, I know I'm going to go there and get what I need. Um. This I I really love Nexus, <laughs> which I don't know why I find that. Listen, there's nothing wrong with that. Well, I don't know why you find that funny because they're constantly updating sound packs. Yeah, so it's a synth that keeps on giving. It's a very and it's such an instant thing. Like there's just some amazing, yeah, there's just some amazing sort of what feel like radio ready things in there. You know that. Um, mm. And I think that's just because and I re- the real the reason I sort of laughed when saying it is because i i do really enjoy kind of programming as well you know and i do really i was recently just um i was just in the studio with charlie xcx a few weeks ago and i was with her main sort of creative director ag cook who sort of oversees all and he is so he's such an amazing sort of um sound designer and producer and he just within five minutes showed me about 15 things on serum that i had no idea about but that that then became that's my new thing at the moment is just kind of messing around i don't necessarily know what i'm doing but you can very quickly find some like mad sounds that can have such a lot of personality um so yeah so a mixture of sort of out of the box preset world you know to trying to trying to sort of experiment as well um listen you've written and produced so many songs that have formed, you know, been part of, you know, the soundtrack of so many people's lives. And, um, and yeah, 
thanks for coming and chatting and uh, it's really really nice to see you and uh, and I, and I love I didn't I genuinely didn't know about your love of 90s house remixes but uh oh really yeah, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll, have, we'll have a long conversation about that on on another time yeah when we'll uh, we'll, we'll get in and talk about that um amazing all right thanks for your time today thank you so and, much uh yeah that's all right i'll see you soon